0: The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Thanks, guys. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, that song makes me think of Peter's words, of where else can we go to find the words to eternal life? And Lord, with you, there is no place that we can go where you are not with us. There is no valley that is too deep. There is no shadow that's too great. There's no woe that is too painful where we can't say what that psalm says, that you are with us. Lord, help us rest in that today. Help us, as that song said, for our souls to be still with that hope, that knowledge we are good with you. We're safe in your hands. Regardless of whatever winds and tempests is is swirling around us in this world, whatever the pain that this dark world is, is offering us in this moment, that with you, with you all things are good. With you there is hope. With you we can rest, knowing that the the only relationship that really matters, the relationship that that we as creatures have with our creator, that in Christ we have been reconciled. Lord, help us this morning to to rest in that knowledge. For those who are weary, for those who describe themselves as heavy laden, for those who who are feeling the weight of their sin, the weight of this world, uh, just... The despair, the, the physical despair, the spiritual despair, the mental despair, the, the, the doubts that can so easily come in and, and, and just cause us to, to wonder, where are you, Lord? Just help all of us to rest. Just be with us now as we get to open up your word in your son's name, amen. Well, I would encourage you to turn to John 8. We're going to be uh, looking at this passage this morning. I want to read it for us, and we'll jump in. John 8, chapter 1. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. And they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery. Now in the, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his fingers on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more he bent bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they had heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I love this story. I love this story because it is one of the best descriptions And displays of God's grace for needy sinners. I love this story because of the comparison that we can see between the self righteous ruthlessness of the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, those people that we've been talking about up to this point, where they were willing to go find some woman in sin. I'm sure that they knew about the sin, but go find her and drag this woman in front of Jesus for one purpose and one purpose only. Not necessarily to chastise her, but to trap Jesus. They essentially threw a sinner away in order for them to uh, get what they want. And we see Jesus receive this woman, not with condemnation not with the same vileness and harshness that the religious leaders are offering, but receive her with grace and send her away, not despairing because she has been caught, but rejoicing because even though she's been caught in her sin, she has been offered grace. I love this story. I've been waiting to teach on this story. But this story is one that While it is a fantastic sermon to preach, and I am looking forward to do that, it's a story that we need to have a conversation about before I actually preach the story. This is actually going to be a two-part sermon looking at the woman caught in adultery. The first part, unapologetically, is going to be academically focused. The second part is going to be pastorally focused. The second part is going to be when I get to riff on just God's grace being displayed with this woman and look at all of the details. But before we get into that, we're going to have to have an academic conversation. The authenticity and the authority of the Bible has always been under attack from the beginning. There have always been people there that are trying to debunk that what we see and have written here is actually God's word and is actually trustworthy. And I understand why they have taken that angle because as people of the book, we've been talking about this around here, as Christians, what sets us apart from the the world is that we have the ultimate authority here. We have the word of God that has been given to us. We, We live our life based upon what these 66 books tells us and if we can discredit this book, then we can discredit the message that's communicated in this book. Therefore, people have made it their aim, have dedicated their life to criticize this book. And they pursued this criticism through two different means. Again, this is going to be academic, but I promise you, I hope, I promise you that it will allow you to better trust in the Word of God, which is why I'm going here. These two criticisms are described as higher criticism, And lower criticism or textual criticism. Now before your eyes roll back in your head. You've actually heard these criticisms um, brought to you. Because higher criticism focuses on the contents of the Bible. Lower criticism or textual criticism focuses on the accuracy of the Bible. And the accuracy of the manuscripts of the Bible. Here's how higher criticism sounds. Here's how you've experienced higher criticism being thrust against you in your everyday life. Higher higher criticism goes after the contents of the Bible. It sounds like this. Do you really believe that silly story that the Bible offers that the world was created in six days? Don't you see that when we use scientific evidence and that when we understand it from a rational standpoint, that it is ridiculous to think that the world was actually created in six days? Isn't it ridiculous that we believe that the Red Sea was split in two and that a million people walked through on dry ground? That is physically impossible. That is ridiculous for you to believe. You are foolish for thinking that. How crazy is it that you worship a person that has risen from the grave? That is physically impossible. There is no way on earth that that can be real. Therefore, this book has to be wrong. They they make you seem foolish and make us seem foolish for believing these things. That's how higher criticism sounds in our common vernacular. But then there's textual criticism. Here's what textual criticism looks like. Textual criticism goes after the contents of the book. Starts describing where the book might um, not agree with themselves. when, When there's errors inside the book. I want everyone to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to prove this to you because here's here's what I know you guys face that we face this all the time I'm thinking about the college students as they're heading back into college right now. There's going to be some professor that's going to look at you and go, you are the dumbest person on earth for believing and trusting in this Bible. I've been surprised on social media how so many ver- people recently have just come out of this ex-evangelical threads where they're talking about it like, you guys are stupid for, for believing this book. And here's the 15 things wrong with it. 1 Corinthians 13. I, w- I, w- I want to uh, show you where there's some textual criticism uh, being put on display. I have the ESV Bible. That's the translation that I use. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 13, 3, here's what that verse says for me. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. That's what my translation says. Does anyone in here have an NIV? I'm not going to make you read it out loud. Show of hands. If anyone using NIV? Couple. If you notice, your translation might be a little different than mine. In fact, it, might, it is different than mine. My translation says, if you give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Here's the way NIV translates it. If I give all my possessions to the poor and give over my body to hardships that I may boast, but have not love, I gain nothing. Textual criticism is put on full display because the NIV translates this verse as that I may boast. ESV translates this verse to be burned. What's going on here? Well, if you look at the manuscripts that, that uh, we use to translate our Bible, there was a difference of opinion. There were two options here. The ESV said the more trustworthy manuscript and translation here is going, is going to, be, to be burned. The NIV and their translators decided that the trustworthy manuscript to use said that I may boast, and therefore you have two distinctions here, two differences here. And people have said, ah, because there's a distinction. Because there's, not, there's a disagreement, because there's a discrepancy, clearly you can't trust the Bible. I, I can't be the only person who has heard these arguments thrown in my face. These tactics are used to cause doubt about the Bible's accuracy and therefore authority. And we can seem foolish and naive to place our soul, trust, and hope in this Bible when people go, well, yeah, clearly you can be seen foolish on the higher criticism side of things and on the textual criticism side of things. Now, why am I bringing this up in today's sermon? You might go, this is odd. Or even Damien's like, what, what, what in the world is going on? Go back to John. Go back to John 8. Whether you have a physical copy of the Bible or whether you have a digital copy of the Bible, Look how John 8 begins. Somehow there's going to be a footnote or a parenthesis. In my Bible, there's this John 8, 1 through 11 is put in double brackets. And ahead of that, it says the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Do not include the section that I just read. Now... As people of the book, we need to make sure that we're believing what's actually the Word of God and trusting in the right things. And here, when you read this, it clearly says the earliest manuscripts do not include this. So, should I believe that this is actually God's Word? And should I view this as trustworthy? Is this inspired? Is, should this be in the Bible? And I know it's very easy for us to just read over this in our Bible reading. And just go like, oh yeah, John 8, 1-11. I love this verse. But I think this is a great opportunity As believers who are trusting and resting in the truth of scripture. For us to have a different conversation. If if you're a visitor. I normally don't preach these types of sermons. That are looking at more an academic side of things. We're definitely more pastoral here. But because we preach expositionally. Verse by verse through the Bible. This gives us a great opportunity. To have a conversation. To strengthen all of our faith and knowledge in the Bible. Therefore to to strengthen our faith and knowledge in the message of the Bible. And so I want to talk about. Textual criticism today. And I want to offer you the framework to understand why and how we can trust that this is, in fact, the Word of God. So that's why we're starting with this today. Just for a moment, I want to talk about the details of John 8. We're going to. I'll give you the particular details concerning this passage, and then what I'll do is broaden our discussion to look at text criticism as a whole. So I'm going to give you the details of what that parenthesis in John eight one through eleven means. Next week I'm going to preach this passage. I will say I'm not going to preach this passage today. Next week, I will. please come back. Here's what the parenthesis the earliest manuscripts do not include seven fifty three through eight eleven mean. What we can see is that this section, John eight one through eleven. We know it today is absent from all pre-fifth-century manuscripts. So any manuscript that that has been found and has been dated from 100 A.D. through 400 A.D. does not include this section in the Gospel of John. It goes from John 7:52 uh, through John 8:12, and if you read the story, it makes total sense because. In the last time that we saw, there was this division among the people. They were trying to throw him into prison. It's like, okay, it was the next day. And then two weeks from now, as we look at John 8:12, and he says, again, Jesus spoke to them. It like picks up right where it left off. So it makes sense that you could read this without John 1 through 11 there. Also, none of the early patristic fathers or writings included commentary or discussions on John 1 through 11. Jerome, I don't know if you've heard this guy's name, he was an ancient historian uh, that we get a lot of our detail about just first century AD from, never comments on John 8, 1 through 11. Along with that, when we do see this story in the manuscripts, it's actually been located in 10 different places. Most notably, these are the, the, the most common, is either in John seven thirty six, that's where it's put in. John 21, 25, that's where it's put in. We've even seen it, this story, included in Luke 21, 38. And we've seen it here. So you put all of this evidence together, here's what we have to say. That the evidence strongly suggests that this story does not belong in the original gospel. That when John sat down to wrote his gospel, to write his gospel, and he distributed it to the people, John 8, 1 through 11 was not there. Now, I know this can cause undue and unnecessary alarm. And and this can be one of the the, the roadmaps that people use to to get us to doubt the Bible's accuracy. So this is why I want to have a discussion, a brief discussion, we are going to get done on time, about text criticism. Because it's actually... Understanding text criticism will will bolster your faith in Christ and give you the the confidence that we have as people of the book that we can trust it. Because when I stand up here and I open up the word of God, the most important words that I ever say in any pastor or, or any elder or any person will ever say from this pulpit or any other pulpit comes from this book. I make mistakes all the time. I try to limit them when I'm preaching. I, you know, if I make too great of a mistake, I've actually apologized for something once. This was like years ago, so I'm not perfect. I'm not infallible. I make errors all the time. This Bible, we hold up as the Word of God. This Bible, we hold up as inerrant, inspired, infallible, that we can say you can trust and rest in what these words say. But we don't have any of the original manuscripts from this Bible. And really when it looks at text criticism and when we look at how we have this book today written in English, translated as the ESV Bible, the way that we get from John and Peter and Luke and all of the other gospel writers and Old Testament writers is through manuscripts. Because consider each and every one of these books that we have is a letter, either a personal letter or a corporate letter that was written by one individual to another or to a group of churches. John sat down with a piece of paper, parchment, papyrus. What that—that that was the the um, that paper wasn't invented yet. So he sat down and he wrote out this gospel. And in those writings, when he wrote it out, it was 100% true, accurate, infallible, and inerrant. And when he passed that letter along to the first recipient and he opened it up, you could say, everything in this letter, everything in this book, everything on this scroll is true. This is why, if you look at our website, here's what we say that we believe in Scripture. We believe in the verbal, plenary, God-breathed inspiration of the Bible, both the Old and New Testament, consisting of 66 books, inerrant, In the original writings. I know that's a technical definition. Maybe you've looked on our website. Seen our belief statement. As you've been looking for churches. And you're looking for a church that believes. this. Here's what that means. The verbal part. We believe in verbal. Every word. Every word that is in the Bible is God-breathed, is God-given. So, there's not one word in here that we believe is like, oh, that's man's word. We don't look at it and go, this was God speaking and this was Paul speaking, but Paul wasn't really speaking for God. No, when we say that Paul's speaking, we're saying God is speaking through Paul. Every word. Plenary. That was an odd word. I don't necessarily throw that word around in in everyday context. Essentially, what it means is fully authoritative. All parts. All parts. It all sums up to this way. This is God's word. All 66 books, all of the words, we can open up and we can take it to the bank. That it is actually God's word. Now, why do we believe this? Because scripture says it. This is what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training and righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's why as a pastor I can stand up in, here and say we are people of the book. That if we need to know one thing and one thing only, we need to know what this book says. 1 Peter 2, 1 through nine, 19 through 21 says this. We have this prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in, our heart, in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever been produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is Peter, in one sense, even describing how his words are to be understood and translated. When, when somebody gets the book of 2 Peter, or 1 Peter, and they read it, Peter's saying... These aren't my words, just my words. Maybe he wrote them down. Maybe he chose in in his own mind uh, the, the particular word to use. But what he says is, those are God's words. I'm speaking on God's behalf that it's me and God communicating these things. So if you have a problem with these words, you don't have a problem with Paul or Peter or John or whomever else. You have a problem with God. John 16 even speaks to it this way. I still have more things to say to you. This is Jesus speaking in the upper room discourse. But you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But, who, but whatever he hears. He will speak. And he will declare to you the things. That are to come. You just think. That when those original writings. Were passed around. You could hold it in your hand. And go this. Is God's word. Now, you could be thinking right now, but Ryan, we don't have the originals. Those are lost. And we don't have the originals. There's not one original copy of the Bible that still exists. And you might go, well then what are we to do? Because that's concerning to me. Because if I just spent all this time talking about how the originals were the inspired word of God and infallible and inerrant and we could trust that they were God's words but we don't have the originals. This is really where text criticism takes off. Because we don't have the originals but we do have the copies of the originals. Imagine this. Prior to 1436 if you wanted a copy of something you didn't just run down the Kinkos and say, give me a hundred copies of this. Can you staple them and put them in a binder and all that No. You had to hire a scribe or you had to do it yourself to copy it. Imagine getting the book of Revelation. Seven churches in there. Goes to the first church. Can't think of whatever the first church is right now. Goes to the first church. You read it. Your mind is blown. But clearly there's seven churches so you can't hoard this book you got to pass it along to the second church so they can pass it along to the third church and pass it along to the fourth church but you want the but you want a copy of this you want to be able to read this and sink your teeth into it and study it even more so what are you going to do you're going to take the book of revelation you're going to take the original and you're going to ask a scribe can you copy this can you copy this down so I can study this later and they're gonna copy it. And then that original is gonna go to the second church. And the second church, remember that is, they're gonna do the same thing and then it's gonna go to the third church and they're gonna do the same thing. Well then the copy is gonna have a copy and that copy is gonna have a copy. And this thing is going to be passed around, not because the original is passed around, not because somebody made a photocopy of it, but because a scribe sat down and hand copied this thing. Now, why did I bring up 1436? What happened in 1436? That was the printing press. Do you realize that was the first time, 1436 was the first time that we could make duplicates of something and truly believe, truly know that it was a duplicate. Because one page could come off and another could go on and we would know that the same original, the print there, stayed the same. Before that, the only way to transmit anything was through copies. Copies. Now, you might go, that seems like a very difficult way of doing things. That seems like a very inaccurate way of doing things. I've been trying to think of an illustration of, like, what, what this would look like outside of this, this scenario. Who's, who's ever played the, the telephone game? Probably everyone, yeah. You know, I tell one person, and that person tells another person, and that person tells another person, and it gets all the way around the line, and it turns into some absolutely crazy thing. You're like, I didn't say that at all. Imagine if I went to a hundred people and I gave them a message and I told these hundred people the exact same message but I instructed them, I need you to go tell another hundred people and I need you to instruct them to go tell another hundred people and this message was so amazing that it just spread like wildfire and everyone had to know the message that I gave to the original hundred people but I went away. I never told my message to anyone else. I died and it, it just continued to grow and 1400 years later After those hundred people multiplied to another hundred people, which multiplied to another hundred people, and it just continued to go that way. They got all of those manuscripts together. They don't know what I said, but they compared those manuscripts together and what they found. Was well, you know, here and there, there was a little mistake, like burned and boast, got confused because that is a very close spelling here and there. And yes, maybe in one or two of these manuscripts, one or two of these these copies, a word was left out, or a sentence was left out, or maybe something was added here or there. But what they found was that you could clearly tell the original message because they all aligned. That's what we see with the Bible if you're still concerned because what we trust to be the Word of God is based upon copies, allow me to compare some stats with you. Copying a text to pass it along was just the way that we we did things prior to the printing press. Julius Caesar's book on the Gaelic Wars, if you're an, an historian, it's the best manuscript of Caesar's Gaelic Wars it it took place between 58 BC and 50 BC and everyone looks at the Gaelic Wars in this this book to describe what was going on in the time there are 10 manuscripts that exist from this Gaelic Wars people trust that what the book about the Gaelic Wars said is what actually happened because there's 10 manuscripts that they can look at and go oh yeah they all they all uh, um, say the same thing Livy's Roman History is roughly written about the time of Jesus' lifetime. Twenty manuscripts exist for this book. Uh, um, Tectus Histories and Annals, which was composed around 100 AD, which is, which is a, looking at the end of the Roman Empire. Two manuscripts exist. Historians trust that what those books say, what we have today based upon those manuscripts actually took place. In your own mind right now, take a wild guess at how many biblical manuscripts there are that we trust in to know that we have the accurate word of God based upon the originals. You can just have this number in your own head. 5,801. 5,801 manuscripts that we have that are... Providing for us the assurance that this is the accurate word of God. You know what happened in 1947? We found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls dated back to about 2,000 years ago. So these are the scrolls that were written during Jesus' time and they hadn't been touched so they couldn't have been influenced by any other outside uh, critics that wanted to change things. And what they, when they found these scrolls, there was an assumption, there was a kind of a fear that went around the, the Christian community itself is, is the Bible going to remain accurate? Have we just found this cache of scrolls that's going to prove that actually what we believe is not accurate, that Isaiah is wrong and Jeremiah is wrong and the Old Testament is wrong? but here's what they keep finding as they look at these thousands of scrolls. They opened up Isaiah. They went, it's spot on that what we have in our Bibles, our English Bibles today, is what they had in in the Dead Sea Scrolls 2,000 years ago. The confidence that we can possess, that I can stand up here, that we can trust that this is the word of God, is due to what's called the tenacity of the text. Here's here's how one... um, text critical analysts, how, how they how, how they described it the transmission of the New Testament textual tradition is characterized by an extremely impressive degree of tenacity once a reading occurs it will persist in ob- obstinacy it is precisely the overwhelming mass of New Testament textual tradition which provides an assurance of certainty in establishing the original text what's the translation of that? Every manuscript that they look at that is there to prove, that could possibly disprove that this is not the Word of God, proves that it's the Word of God. Because here's how this works. When you go to translate John or Ephesians or Isaiah or Jeremiah, and each of these new translations, you have this mass of textual critic experts. You have these individuals that have made their, uh, their living and have studied Greek and Hebrew or Aramaic. They know all the details that go around textual criticism far more than I do. I'm just scratching the surface if it can get... It can get rather boring, frankly, but that's a whole other thing. What they do is they then compile all the manuscripts that they have for each of these. So when the Gospel of John is translated, they compile all the possible manuscripts that they have for the Gospel of John, and there are hundreds of them. And they start to compare them. And when there are discrepancies, when there are inconsistencies, they then pull those manuscripts out and they start to judge those inconsistencies. And they start to go, well, John 8, 1 through 11 is in this one, but it's not in that one. And, well, this word over here is used in this verse, but this word over here is used in that verse. And these experts who know the background of all these texts, far greater than any that, that you or I do, understand and go, well, this manuscript is from a more trusted source. This manuscript seems to be more consistent across the board. This translation seems to be the logical choice here. And then they make those decisions. Therefore, we have the Bible that we have today. Let's go back to John 8. Why am I going this deep this morning? I said that John 8, 1 through 11, is absent from all pre-5th century manuscripts. And that it takes place, this story of the adulterous woman, takes place in a variety of places all over scripture. And that none of the patristic writers talk about it in their commentaries. Which would make you think, well then Ryan, throw it away and move past it. But there's a couple other elements with John 8, 1 through 11 that we have to consider. And one of them that is frankly the most important of all. That is God. God and the Holy Spirit. Because God did not just give us the word of God and then say, in like a deistic sense, have fun guys, make sure that you're protecting that. The Holy Spirit has been a part of this process of refining and protecting the word of God from the beginning. It's a providence of God, an act of providence of God that we have this Bible today because he wanted to make sure God The Holy Spirit wanted to make sure that we here today, sitting in 2022, could open up the word of God in our own language and hear about the message of the gospel. But there's another element that we have to consider. Because while this passage doesn't conform to the textual criteria, it does conform to the historical criteria. Because the historical criteria surrounding John 8, 1 through 11 is this that this story has been a part of the Gospel of John for 1,300 years. Christians have been teaching this story, believing this story, trusting the story, assuming that it's the Word of God for 1,300 years. And from that standpoint, it, um, it, it checks some of the boxes. Here's what one commentator says. It is a passage that has been shown to be ancient. That is rooted in the oral tradition that supplied our gospel, the raw materials. And authentic, in that it matches the criteria used to determine what is in the gospels that Jesus truly did and said. Therefore, this text is deemed appropriate for Christians to use and to reflect on. This isn't something, while we can say, we don't think that this story existed in the original manuscript. We can't say, but we should throw it out because what 's happened over the course of 1,300 years is that commentators, pastors, Christians have viewed it as a benign expansion of the canon, essentially what that means is have viewed it as something like yes, it wasn 't in the original, but it 's probably not wrong. really what it 's believed is Jesus did this he, he, he performed this action the Pharisees and the scribes actually came to Jesus while he was at the temple dragging this woman towards him and actually did put Jesus to the test. But John probably didn't put it in his gospel originally. And it's believed that it landed in the gospel here because what happened was along with the gospel, this story was circulating like all of these stories circulated about Jesus. And as I've said from the beginning, the gospel of John or even Matthew, Mark, and Luke aren't the full Rendering of what Jesus did on earth. There's far more stories about Jesus, far more conversations, far more miracles than we ever know about. It's that Matthew told us what he, what he thought we needed to know and Mark and Luke and John. But this other story with the woman caught in adultery was, was one of these that probably just was orally passed down until some scribe, when they were translating the gospel of John and they were reading through it, decided to put it here. Now, I think there's a reason why they decided to put it here. We'll get into that next week because there's this juxtaposition that's going on between the religious leaders and Jesus. And it creates this beautiful tension here where we can really see just the beauty of Christ. But I'll I'll get into that next week. But now I'm going to answer the question, how am I going to preach this passage? And that is, I'm going to preach it. I'm going to approach it as if it's on probation. Here's what I mean. I'm going to give John 8, 1-11 full membership into the canon of scripture. Without loss of rights or privileges. I'm going to believe that it actually happened. But I'm going to serve as if it's on an extended apprenticeship. One that's about 1300 years long. Just, just think about a person on, on probation. A person on, on probation is prohibited from serving in certain authoritative capacities. Like, they can't hold office. We're not going to look at them for deciding certain laws. But they don't lose the fact that they're fully human and have the the basic rights that are given to them as a human. In the same way, we're going to approach John 8, 1 through 11. And we're not going to allow it to build some, or to offer some new doctrinal or theological um, statement or issue. This is why the other big passage like this is the end of Mark. I struggle with the end of Mark because nowhere else... In Scripture, do we see this like worshiping the snake thing and drinking poison? I also hate snakes, so there's I'm going to struggle with that passage anyway. That one's a little different because it's totally unique. Like, where'd that come from? But John eight one through eleven doesn't offer anything new. Rather, it magnifies the beautiful parts of the story that we can see all over the place. And so, we're going to get to look at this and see how. Jesus, this story, emphasizes the grace and the peace and the rest that we have in Christ. Academic side over. This is going to be the hardest transition ever. We'll get to the pastoral side next week. But this morning, as we close, we get to take communion together. And as always, even, even understanding that, you know, you could feel like, whew, just came from a, 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 a Bible class or a or, or seminary class. These details matter. These details matter because we can know that when we sit here together as a body, that we can rest knowing that the life and the death and the sacrifice that we needed was satisfied in Christ. The beautiful thing about all of the manuscripts, all of the, all of the passages, is and, and even in light of all of the differences that we can see, all of them agree upon the message of Christ. That as sinners, we desperately needed a sacrifice. We desperately needed a substitute. And that substitute was found in Christ. Whom, taking on flesh, became truly God and truly man. And lived the perfect life that was required of us. And died the satisfactory death that we had to have. And we can sit here today and know without a shadow of a doubt that our hope is found in him. Maybe you're struggling with trusting trusting the Bible, because maybe you're caught up in that ex-evangelical thread that just likes to start tearing apart the faith that we have, and they're attacking they're attacking the Bible like they always do. I can assure you that you are among how does Hebrews 11 no how does Hebrews 12 say the great cloud of witnesses that are declaring to us all that our faith in Christ is not in vain. So when you take this table this morning, know that you can trust and rest knowing that Christ's life is enough. Let's pray and we can take this together. Lord, thank you for your word and for the amazing reality that we have that you have protected your communication, that you've protected your... Holy, inspired, and errant, and fallible word. Lord, thank you that, as your creatures, that are living in this century, in this town, going through our particular struggles, very different from what was going on in first century A.D. in Israel. Thank you that you have loved us enough to send us your Son you've loved us enough to communicate to us how we might be reconciled to you. Thank you that you did not leave us in despair, but you offered us grace. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that is truly struggling with trusting Scripture, if there's somebody in their ear that just keeps pointing them in a, in a different direction and calling them foolish and making them think that they're naive for trusting in this book that's 2,000 years old, Lord, give them eyes to see, faith to rest in, that what we read here in Scripture is truly from you. Just be with us now as we we take your table. In your name, amen.